All right, welcome everybody to uh, to chapter four. So we're doing, oh, you guys, everyone has a Tanakh, right? We're all good, perfect. So if you guys haven't been here yet, we've done the first three chapters of uh, of the Sefer, and it's been uh, an, an amazing ride already. Only three out of the 12 that we've done, we've already learned so much. So if you have, if you'd like, you can listen to some of the recordings. Um, otherwise, we could just jump right in here with chapter four. Um, and of course, this is a very participative class. I want to hear all your thoughts constantly. I want to hear your questions. I don't want it to be a lecture. That's just something I give always as a, a first line thing. I don't want anyone to think that I'm, I just, I do like hearing myself talk, but that's not a secret to anybody, but uh, uh, Mars no, Mar couldn't come tonight. I know, I know. I need somebody to yell at me. You know, I need somebody to really get, Almiz, I think it's going to have to be your Gabe. Somebody's going to have to step in and really, hey, Sherry. You want to cook it? Good to see it. Hi, thank you so much for having Hi. me. Thank you so much for, for joining us. I'm, I'm honored. Excited. I'm extremely honored. Thank you. Thank you. So, so uh, I was just saying, I really want to hear from all of you, Sherry, anybody, Albert, Gabe, and Dr. Nasser. Good to see you all. Um, I want to hear questions and comments throughout. Uh, so we'll, we'll dig right in. So we left off last chapter. If you read the last pasuk, let me just uh, pull it up here on uh, the computer. Oh, let me share the screen also. Here we go. Uh, anybody see share screen? Here we go, share screen. Share. Okay, now you guys can see my screen. So if you look in the last chapter, the way we ended off, the only thing that there is to enjoy in this life is pleasure from whatever possessions you have. And just enjoy the fruits of that labor. Don't work too hard because, you know, you, you can't know what's going to come after you. It's a bit of a depressing idea. But in context of everything he's saying, it makes a little bit of sense. You know, if you, if you work way too hard and you don't enjoy what you're doing, it's not going to be a big payout for you. So we mentioned the idea of finding flow in your work as a counterbalancing idea, but we'll leave, we'll leave room to his tone before we insert ours. Um, so now for chapter four, just a very brief introduction. Uh, Michael Fox talks about your fellowship and conflict. The passage is a cluster of five different sections that, and it's going to share the theme of patterns in human relations. So some idea, the, the idea of, uh, uh, of, how do humans work when they get into groups and what Kohelet believes to be the, the proper way of functioning of different people and different uh, groups. And we'll see his, his, uh, his views on it. So let's just jump right in. Uh, says, I further observed all the oppression that goes on under the sun. So we, we've almost been waiting for Kohelet to discuss this, right? He's discussed all the things that he sees as negative about the world, but he hasn't really spoken about evil and injustice yet, which is pretty surprising because somebody who's going to be negative about the world, the number one thing that people would probably say on a survey is human evil or evil in the world, any kind of evil. And he doesn't really address that. He just addresses a lot of meaninglessness. So this is sort of new for us. And it's almost like, all right, it's about time that he addresses this. So all the, I further observed all the oppression that goes on under the sun. <laughs> so 
the tears of the oppressed. So it's very, you could kind of feel it viscerally with none to comfort them and the power of their oppressors with none to comfort them. So look at the repetition. He's really trying to hit you hard with this idea that there's, there's just, it's adding insult to injury. The fact that there's nobody to comfort this person and it's not just suffering, but it's meaningless suffering. When it, it could have been alleviated to some small degree, even if somebody would just say, come now, feel better. Nobody could even do that for, the, for certain people. So that's really just something completely meaningless in his eyes. So just a couple points here. So first of all, how does that, how does that hit you? How does this pasuk right off the bat, how does it kind of start off your view of this chapter? Any, any immediate reactions, one word thoughts about this pasuk? Right, if you had to he describe it. He likes the sun a lot. I was just skimming yes, the beginning. Yes, he does thing. like the sun. He likes the shemesh. And it's very, like it makes me think of why it is because it's something that I enjoy, but I'm definitely seeing a lot of like uh, descriptions of different like weather forecasts is how I feel. Absolutely, like totality and stuff like that, 100%. Um, Mike. Uh, yeah. Yes, Gabe. The skeptic in me will see it as like kind of fake. Um, I'm not sure if it's if we've already encountered this, but like if he if the author is uh, Shlomo Hamelech, he's you know he's wealthy, he has all luxuries in the world, you know he's pretty removed from the sufferings and the oppression of the of the masses. Um, even though he could observe it, he doesn't really, he'll never really fully understand it because he doesn't experience it himself. Okay, I hear you, but the, you know, you don't have to insist that it's shown. We, that we, we had a whole thing of, of the past few weeks about who yeah, the author. I missed the last few weeks, so. No problem, no problem at all. But so we won't go down that rabbit hole in particular, but I hear your point, but I still do think any human that's alive on the planet has at least some view of human suffering. I don't think any human, no matter how rich you are, is, is immune to seeing some degrees of suffering. But, but you're right, I, I do hear that point. Um, so he's contemplating social injustice, that's number one. Um, and this is just so interestingly, the first reaction you might have also is like, we hear this from so many of our Nevi'im, right? We hear Nevi'im railing against human injustice. Ashukim is a very common word, you know, Ashukim and in the Torah and the Nevi'im. But it's so interesting to see that Kohelet doesn't do what every other person in the Tanakh would do, which is to look at it and say, okay, so we have to be better. We have to strive to create meaning and goodness in the world. Kohelet doesn't do that. He just says basically, you know, he, his view is that events will always repeat themselves. Everything is cyclical. This is the way of the world. He's not telling you this so that it spurs you to go make the world better. He's just saying this is the way it is, and it's meaningless. The possibility of improvement does not seem to occur to him. That's how strong it is. The level of nihilism is that not only is he painting this picture, but he's saying it didn't even pop into his head to say that something could be different because for him, it's inexorable. This is the way the world is, and that's it, right? And like, we know this already. How can I prove this? Because he says in chapter 1, Pasuk 15, lo yuchalitkon. A twisted thing cannot be made straight. So something that is so fundamentally lacking in the world can never really be fixed. And yes. 
<laughs> wow. All right. And what would you say? I agree. You agree. Like I'm glad you agree with theoretical Mars. That's good. <laughs> okay. Yes. So it definitely does sound like depression. Right? We talked about Beck's triad, exactly. uh, personalization, overgeneralization, and catastrophization. And that's exactly it. Every he, he starts from such a low point so often in these chapters. And it's so apparent to us that he's thinking in such black and white terms. And that's why he's falling down these rabbit holes of depression and nihilism, you know, and, and sometimes hedonism. Right. Um, and we mentioned, yes. Good question. Yes. Or is it more of like a, in the nature of the world and yeah. there's ups and downs it's more of the latter i would say especially in context of you know last chapter we said there's a time for for being born time for dying time for planting a time for so everything like, 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 like is that what you're talking about not like me out just that there's a time in life for different things to happen oh, good and bad things in general. in general and he does according to michael fox's commentary it's it's less of a of a determinism about him than a this is the way that the world's nature is and it's not deterministic from the future, but it's just the way that patterns play out randomly, you know? Um, and we mentioned the rep the repetition. The repetition, he's really trying to hit you with this hopelessness. And lahem menachem, and lahem menachem. There's, there's something so strong about this lack of companionship of this person's suffering. You know, there's nothing, when you think about Yosef Sadiq in jail, like just suffering alone, you don't know the meaning of it, nobody to comfort you. And according to him, it's just the way of the world, right? Um, so let's continue. Any any other comments before we move on? Okay, so let's do it. Right? And I accounted those who died long since. More fortunate, right? Uh, more fortunate than those who are still living. Right? So here, it just he gets really to the, the, the deepest depths, I think, of what depression could be, which is wishing to not be. And it, it might not even be personal to him, but just as a philosophical point even, better to not even be. We see that in a, some Nevi'im say that, cursed is the day I was born, cursed is the person who told my mom that she was gonna have a kid. These are the levels of depression that we get to. And just, if you're new to the class, I wanna make it clear, we always try to end on an upbeat note. We always want to, you know, point out where he's going wrong so that we can understand for ourselves how not to make the same mistakes that I humbly feel that he's making. Kohelet? Well, but Mike, that doesn't mean. That yes. Could I, could I jump in here for a little? Please? Albert, that, you know, I love when you jump in. I love it too. Uh, thank you. Um, so it's an interesting thing. Like you're, you're mentioning how it's like a lot of depression and obviously, you know, death is, it is a bad thing. Right. It is a scary thing. It's a it's a morbid thing. We, we mourn for it. And that's what goes on in our society. Uh, but a big thing I learned about the Renaissance period, they, they looked at death as a very happy thing. Matter of fact, uh, not really? quite as a depression, rather that it's you found yourself in a position where you're at the uh, like eternal sleep. You've done what you have to have done and um, you're kind of over now. And uh they would they used to celebrate death rather than uh, mourn it. Um, so in a way, when I was reading this, I kind of looked at this as as a, as a as a perspective, you know, in a sense to see maybe he's not really depressed. He's kind of looking forward to to the next 
the next adventure, I guess. Or I, I, I would agree with you more if he was talking about the event of dying, but he's talking about already not existing, being better than existing. So that, for me, points to this idea of despondency. That's really what it is. It's just despair. But I don't think in, in, my in a depression. I don't think in a depression way. Maybe he's he's mentioning that yes, life is hard. Of course, it is. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, yeah. there's a there's a there's a sense of joy and I, I feel from him when he's mentioning that he's kind of yeah, he's kind of jealous. Saying. They're more fortunate in a way that they have died rather than the people yes. who are still yes. living. Yes. You know? yes, I like that perspective. I mean, so if, just if to it give is a little light because con- I I know you like to give a little light, so I learned yes. from you in a big oh, way. Yeah, I love that light. Uh, let me let's look briefly because he quotes here two seventeen also. What does he say in 217 that's similar? Just remind myself. He says, I loathe life. He hated life. And, and that, you know, it's, it's kind of reiterating that idea of hating life and liking death more. I don't know. It seems pretty despondent, but also to bring some light, he will eventually come to affirm the intrinsic value of life in chapter 9 and chapter 11. He's going to talk about life being fundamentally better than death. Um, so stay right. tuned for that. Yes. You know, that's the thing about this book is it's such a good raw expression of the stream of consciousness because it's not just this is the truth. And I'm not he, he changes his mind. He goes through different thought patterns and, and contradicts himself because that's real human experience. We feel different things at different times and that's fine. And we should express all of them and see how we feel based on different moments. And I think that's the beauty of, of Kohelet, you know, and like we always say, it's a cathartic experience, 8.30 to 9.30 on a Tuesday to do this. And you don't have to bring it into the rest of your week per se. I know you like when I quote that, Sarah. Um, okay. Yeah, that's how it feels. I love that. That's great. Tuesdays with Michael, we'll call it. I like that. And it's almost 14 Tuesdays. Yeah. Oh, that's great. I'm obsessed with it. That's great. My favorite book. It's such a good book. Yes. All right. Um, okay. Any questions about that? And interesting, the word shabayah is like praising also. It's not just accounting. counting. They, they interpret it that way. It's also the shabayah is to praise, you know. Um, so let's see. Verse 3. Tov mishinehem et and happier than either are those who have not yet come into being and have never witnessed the miseries that go on under the sun. So it's better to have never even been born. We know that Yahu says that when he's experiencing all his injustice. I think Eov probably mentioned something like that. So it's like, you know, Albert, I hear your point from earlier. But this to me seems just like a complete and utter sadness regarding uh, life in general because of injustice. And it's a pretty righteous thing that he, this is a pretty moral, moralistic thing that he's saying, as opposed to other things that he's said in previous chapters about, oh yeah, human accomplishment doesn't really, this is, this is more of just like, no, people suffering. You know, and uh, one interesting point here that, that Michael Fox makes, Kohelet seems to be most troubled by the effect of the miseries on the onlookers, such as himself, who are dismayed at the sight of life's ugliness. So it's not that moral and not that moralistic, because he's most bothered by the fact that he has to even look at this. He's like, why do I even have to pay attention and see this kind of thing? And, but it's not as bad as that sounds, because 
if you were alive in, during the time of the Holocaust, yes, of course, you would have uh, compassion and you would hate to see what's going on. But more like I even just said it now, the, a very honest thing would be I, I can't even bear to watch what's going on on the planet right now. I don't even want to know about this. It's just so evil. They systematically are trying to to wipe a people out. It just boggles the mind. So we can understand where he's coming from. When genocides happen, when true evil rears its head, this is the kind of feeling we have as humans. We, I, I wish I never even had to be exposed to that. So this piece is about Ashikahim and, and all about the, the injustice. That's how he opened it in verse one, which is a great point because the, before this in the book, not a single mention of human evil, really. It was all about meaninglessness of our accomplishments and wisdom. Now it's meaninglessness of suffering, specifically, which is probably top on our list today. But for him, it comes later in the book. So that's just interesting. Um, so let's continue on. Right. I have also noted that all labor and skillful enterprise come from men's envy of each other. Another futility and pursuit of women. So this is such a fundamental pasuk because I think we all feel that way in today's rat race of a society, especially in our community, how much we compare each other, how much a school system is like that, wealth, looks, you name it, this is what we're doing as humans. And it's probably one of the most painful things to be compared. You know, my sister has a beautiful rule in her household. She says to her kids, we don't compare. It's a mantra. She repeats it over and over again. And I watch the way her kids grow up and it's, it's, a, it's a pellet to me because they love each other and they do compete in certain ways. But that's the beauty of it is that when you love each kid for themselves, not on the basis of living up to a standard of their sibling, it removes a lot of that pain. But at the end of the day, the, 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 the fact of the matter is you got into the real world, people are going to start comparing you and there's going to be jealousy and there's going to be all this strife that happens. And it's pretty unnecessary when you think about it. We could collaborate in a lot of ways. Um, and a lot of this is, is, is meaningless, this, this type of jealousy. And that's what he's pointing out here, Kohelet. Like he's saying there's really just no need for this level of, of kin'ah. And it, it might drive some degree of our uh, ambitions, but does it have to be this much? Does it have to be so much that we are bothered by other people's accomplishments and that we feel that our accomplishments are not good enough? It doesn't have to be. It really doesn't. I mean, at the end of the day, it is incredible. Capitalism is almost based on jealousy. You're right. You're right. Yes. Yes. So I think that's exactly. I like Jacqueline's point. It's perfect because it doesn't have to go that far. That's exactly the thing. And I think it very often and too often does go that far. You know, so that's a great point. On both ends. Um, so this is a really interesting imagery here. The true, the fool folds his hands together and has to eat his own flesh. What the heck does that mean, right? So it's a, it's a eating human flesh is a metaphor of destruction in, in Tehillim and Micha and Yeshayahu. 
Um, you know, it, it's, it has different meanings throughout the Tanakh, but that's really the primary one, this idea of destruction. Um, and it, the underlying picture really is of a foolish man sitting with his hands clasped together and gnawing on his knuckles because he just is too foolish to go out and, and, and do business or support himself. And, and he's forced to, in a way, eat his own flesh, take it literally or metaphorically. But the way he puts it here, it's an acrid scene of anxiety and self-destruction. So that's the, the, the key here, is that there's just some people out there who go way too far to one end. You know how he's, he keeps talking about, don't work too hard, don't have too much amal. Well, then you have the free rider people who are good for nothing, bums. In a way, I hate to, be, I hate to say it like that, because, of course, nobody's good for nothing. I'm, I'm being emphatic here. Um, but there are people who are, to their own detriment, very non-productive, and they just completely, you know, are shooting themselves in the foot, and they end up having to eat their own flesh in a metaphorical way because it leads to, to their own downfall by them not engaging in anything productive. All right. So let's get this. He's going to continue the point here. So we'll see until verse seven. Tov melochaf nahat naim amal urut ruach. But no less truly, better is a handful of gratification than two fistfuls of labor, which is pursuit of wind. Super interesting, Pasuk. What do you guys make of that? He's going to get a lot of these very nice Mishle-type Pasukim in now soon. How, do you, how does this hit you? What do you, what do you, what do you make of this? Is he saying he likes things point fed more than working hard for it? Because I would expect the opposite, but I don't know if that's what he's saying. Close, but not quite. I thought that's kind of thinking of like that, you know, that piece of balance, like whoever has like less, like the smaller, like the more. Yeah. Marbene Hasim, Marbene Aga, but the converse of that is another one. Okay, interesting, but yeah. saying the opposite extreme, which is like, first he said talking about people who don't do anything. Mm-hmm. So now, no less truly, it's still better to have a little bit of gratification. Work really there you go. Exactly, Michael, right? So, yes. Michael, sorry to interrupt. Um, I can't hear the questions. Are, you, are there people in the room with you? Is that why I can't hear them? Yes, yes, there are. Sorry. So, yeah, if oh, you guys. Could you just try to repeat, uh, you know, a little bit of oh, what yes, the questions the are question. so we know? Thank you. So, question was, is it, you know, uh, someone said maybe it's, um, it's that he's he's completely against any type of work at all. He wants everything to be spoon fed. Um, but now another person said, no, it's probably really just that there's a spectrum. And I think that's exactly it. The previous Pasuk, Pasuk 5, was saying one specific end of the spectrum, which is completely doing no work at all. And then Pasuk 6 is presenting the alternatives, which is here, Melochof Naim Amal which is doing a crazy amount of work, two fistfuls of labor, and then there's the middle ground, which is one handful of gratification, right? So he's trying to tell you exactly that. Just do a, a moderate amount. Is there- I think it really yeah. makes sense if you're going back to the imagery of hands. Yes, wow, beautiful. There you go, 100%, exact spot on. And is there, is this, more pertinent today now than ever, I think it is, because we have this workaholism, we have this never-ending desire for more and more and more, and we can't stop ourselves. We just keep needing to make money. Whatever's driving us, we just keep going, and we're never really satisfied with just 
what's in front of us. And we, we, we've lost this concept of moderate labor. And uh, I hope I don't get too much flack for this, but choosing my career even, like to be what type of doctor do I want to be? So many people say, oh, I'll go into plastics, could be, be this, be that. And it's like, I don't want to look at blobs on someone's skin the rest of my life. You know, I don't want to be a dermatologist. Oh, but they make money. Okay, if they make money, I want to do something I enjoy, you know, and uh, oh, so do this. I'm like, well, that's, you know, not the, the, the lifestyle I want to leave. So I want to do psychiatry. And, and so much in our community, so many of the voices are, no, more work is better. More money is better. It doesn't matter if you're not happy. Get through it it's for, your, for your family. It's like, okay, so then what? Then your kids are going to do the same thing, and they're also not going to enjoy it for their family. So who are you really doing this for? It's for nobody. Nobody gets to enjoy it because it's a never-ending cycle of people doing things they don't want for people who don't want to do things that they don't want to do. Well, your, you know, I'm just so emphatic about not doing things that I don't want to do. Is that? How do you know they hated what they did? If it was that idea, because you're saying that idea is so prevalent, everyone has that idea of giving it to the next generation. So whoever in your family did that was ultimately for your sake. But I feel like they got you to this point. Would you be a doctor <laughs> if you didn't grow up in this community, you didn't have the upbringing, the good education, the support? I have no idea. You're right. No, but I still think that that then me being the type of doctor that I want is like spitting in their face, according to you, saying, oh, I should continue in their way and do things I don't like. No, I, I, I think that's the Ah, so end the chain of, of people doing things they don't like. Good. Okay. Michael, Michael, sorry. Yeah, I, I am seeing the wisdom now in the Pasuk, the way you've explained it. And I, I definitely, you know, uh, agree with you completely. It's so uncommon for someone to say in, in America, you know, in my profession too, similar to yours or what, what you've been exposed to, I have enough money. Uh, you know, I don't really need to, uh, take the, that extra call or, or go to that extra hospital. I'm good. I'm happy with what I have. I'm happy with, with what I'm doing. And, you know, let someone else uh, take the business. You never hear that, yep. you know, it's uh, and if you yep. say that people look at you like you're out of your mind. Similarly in business, yep. I'm sure it's the same thing. Oh, I don't really need to take uh, another meeting. I don't need to go on another trip. I don't need to, to make the sale. I have enough sales uh, for the month and uh, you know, I'm good. <laughs> It's yep. so hard, right, to turn away business. Crazy. We always think that more is better, and it's just not true. It's just not true. There, you are destroying Adam two. When Adam one, you know this, the Rabbi Soloveitchik idea. You have you add the ch- first two chapters of Bereshit, parallel to you know the resume virtues and eulogy virtues, in the words of David Brooks, or the idea that you have some things that you do for your career self, some things you do for your religious, spiritual self, you name it. And when it really does, when you just are continuing to foster the life of Adam one, it does take away from Adam two. So I think that really is a good way of of encapsulating what's lacking in our society. We don't have enough Adam two. We don't have enough of the eulogy virtues. So that's, I think, really just a a good way of putting it. But thank you. That's exactly right. Um, So that's Pasuk six. So let's look at seven. V'shavti anivayr e hevel tahat hashamish. And I have noted this further futility under the sun. So now this is like a preamble for the next thing. Oh, so just to quote one more uh, saying, saying of the Hachamim that fits with what we were saying. And maybe this is what you were saying, Doret. Better a little with fear of the Lord than great wealth with confusion in it. So it's better to have just a little bit with Yirat Shamaim, with Nahat Ruach, 
rather than having great wealth and confusion and worry and all that, because that's just the fact of the matter. When you're a workaholic, that's the kind of lifestyle you're going to have, you know? Um, so now the next section is going to be focused on the lone man's labor. So it's just Pesukim 7 and 8. So let's dive in. Yesh ehad ve'ensheni gam ben va'ah enlo ven ketz lecho amalo. The case of the man who is alone with no companion, who has neither son nor brother, right? Yet he amasses wealth without limit, right? The enkets lo, begam eno lo tisba osher. And his eye is never sated, never satiated, Yani, with riches. This is exactly what we were discussing. Ulmi ani amel, um hasered nafshimitoba, gam zehevel danyan rahu. For whom now is he amassing it while denying himself enjoyment? That too is, is a futility and an unhappy business. Anybody have a problem with the translation here? What, what bothers you about this translation? I'll give you a hint. It's on this line. Uh, wasn't what I was thinking, but uh, could be. Sorry, we're on oh, one now. It's saying like himself as opposed to Nafshi being like a different, like maybe his soul. So like it's equating like the soul as like referring to like man himself. So, I'm not sure. so yeah, this it's uh. You're you're on it exactly, but but more of the right. What do they say? Ulni ani ulni ani amel. Who am I, you know, uh, working for? But what does it say? For whom now is he amassing it? So for some reason the translation makes it. Oh, uh, it makes more sense to say it's talking about this person, but Kohelet makes it about himself. It could be. So that's the translation. But I think just Pashut, yeah, exactly. JPS is going to note it. The Pshat Pashut seems to be that he's reflecting for himself personally, Kohelet. And the first person is saying, why am I doing all this? So, so let's just first talk about what's going on here. So you have a guy who is alone, nobody to inherit him. Why is he working so hard? And then Kohelet just has this little soliloquy here, this little aside. It says, what, what am I actually doing all this for? He said, I did it myself. I fell into this trap. You know, and, and I have myself in mind as this workaholic loner. And because I was that way, you know, he's just kind of like lamenting. Why did I do that? So it's interesting. Just little, if, if it is true, it's an interesting insight to who Kohelet is as a person. He, he was that kind of person who amassed all this wealth and did all this stuff. And he realized that it was meaningless. And he realizes, look, I just worked too hard. And I didn't focus on, I didn't make time for family, cats in the cradle. Who knows what? But he just, he's noticing that now. So that's just really interesting. Um, what did you nine. mention earlier on with like the potential people you discussed as being coherent? So you said, you said it earlier Yes, on, perfect. Good question. Know. So I'll say briefly, it's, you know, the Hachamim thought that it was Shalom. The scholars, a lot of them believe that it's, that the, the that the narrator wants you to believe it's Shilomo. Michael Fox says, really, that he doesn't think the narrator wants you to think it's Shilomo, based on even the end of the book, where he, he just tells you he's this uh, this scholar person, and he's that's how he presents himself. 
people didn't really like Michael Fox's interpretation, but Michael Fox says that he's really a fictional character within the book. Kohelet is a, a character made up by the narrator to teach you, uh, the reader, a lesson based on Kohelet's words and wisdom. So you could take it however you really prefer, but yeah, 100%. Michael, uh, let me just delve a minute into this workaholic nature and why, why it happens and, yes. and what, you know, what we could learn uh, from it. I was just thinking for a moment, you know, why is it that that someone uh, who has enough, has food, has, you know, whatever he needs, he can pay the yeshiva bills or, you know, whatever, whatever he needs to do. Why is it that he, you know, he's, he can't, he or she, I know I'm using masculine, uh, they can't, you, uh, you know, refuse additional work. Or they, they, they can't say no. Um, any, any thoughts? What's the reason? What's the main, the main reason why they don't want to, you know, take, make an extra buck? even if it means they're going to miss their kids, you know, event or, or, you know, not uh, satisfy other obligations. What, what, what's the, what's the reason? Well, I think we're goal oriented people in general. Like if you look at Judaism, it's all about um, like this, this inner evolvement, self-evolvement. And I think that translates very well into like fiscal goals. or actual No, no. Listen, he met his goal. He or she, they met their goal. You met your goal. You made the amount of money you need for the month. And, you know, you have time now. You could spend some time with your family. You could uh, do what you need to do, other stuff, maybe growth, personal growth and development. But instead you say, oh, I want to make more. Why? I have the answer. The answer is lack of emunah. That's wow. the bottom line. Lack of emunah. Wow. Because you're saying to yourself, I need to make enough money now. I made enough that I need. Now I need to make extra. Why? Because I don't really trust in tomorrow, in the future. Maybe, you know, I won't have money in the future. So I need to save. I have to have extra. And you never really know how much extra you're going to need, right? Because, you know, who, who can predict the future? And so you're going to make more extra, more extra, more extra. And it's kind of a vicious cycle. You never know when to stop because you're always thinking, well, I don't know. Maybe next year something's going to happen or, or, you know, something bad health or bad this or bad that. But if you can somehow convince yourself that Hashem, you know, there's a plan and, and there's, you know, and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm doing what's the right thing to do. And sometimes maybe I won't have money in the future. You know, maybe that's, that's how it's going to be. But I have emunah that, that I, you know, that I have faith that I'm going to do the right thing to make the right amount of money. And then I'm going to take the chance. I'm going to take the risk because of my faith in Hashem and, and faith in, in the way, you know, I want to live my life, that that's that I make the right choices. And I take the chance that maybe I will run out of money one day. It's not impossible, but I'm going to kind of enjoy it anyway, enjoy today now anyway, even though I could dwell on the future, all the possibilities that things can go wrong, but I'm going to just kind of put that out of my head. Uh, anyway, I'm trying to develop the concept here, but I really do think that's what it is. I love that. You know, I especially love that is because we often look at what Kohelet is saying as nihilistic. And I, I give it, unfortunately, sometimes I give it like these very negative connotations to what he says. But if you look at it objectively, there is a giant lesson to be learned from what he's talking about, which is some we, we for, we've forgotten in our society today to do things for their own sake. How many things do we ever do for their own sake? So few things. That's why mindfulness is a beautiful thing. I have a friend who actually said mindfulness is just like little moments of nihilism throughout your day. Really, in a way, it is because you're, you're just being mindful for that moment right, right now. 
be mindful for the moment. You're not doing it for the next moment. You're doing it for that moment. There's a, there's a lesson to be learned from Kohelet's realization that if you do everything for the next moment or the next generation or the afterlife or whatever it is, if you're doing it for some later period, you will not be happy. So I think in his, his conclusions even about enjoying pleasures, it doesn't have to just be about just physically enjoying pleasures. It could be about just enjoying the people around you, anything in the moment. That's a beautiful thing. It's really just mindfulness in a way. And I think yeah. that's a brilliant, brilliant point. I just want to comment. It's such an interesting discussion. Um, Thank so, you. Yes. And I think, you know, one of the points that, that we've been talking about is it reminds me of the man um, where, you know, there was enough, but people took more and then it would spoil. And on the one hand, right, on the one hand, we're like that. It's built into us, I guess, um, that we that we take more than we need. But on the other hand, in, in a negative way, right? But on, on the other hand, look what Yosef did, right? When he was preparing for the future, um, you know, in some way he was amassing things because he was gonna use it later on when things do get, you know, more dire. So I, I don't know, it's a bit of a quandary, I guess. I think it's a balance. I think that's exactly it is that, you know, he like he mentioned, he mentioned the person who has to sit there and eat his knuckles because he didn't do nothing. But then he mentions the guy who is a workaholic and amal, and he's just doing way too much. You should be the person that has just just one handful of gratification. You did your part, like Dr. Nasser was saying, do that little bit, not a little bit, do that that right amount. And it's different for every person in different times, you know, different contexts. You got to find it. Nobody else could tell you what the right amount for you is. You got to discover that on your own. But that's the beauty is that when you find that right balance, you'll know it and you'll feel that gratification and you'll feel like you're in that, that sweet spot where, you know, I know that there's more stuff to be done, but I feel like I could kind of rest now and I could allow myself. And that's very much what Shabbat is, right? Shabbat is so much just you know, say that it should be in your eyes as though all your work really is done. Take that day and just appreciate it. And that's why Shabbat is where it's it's in a way nihilistic. Forgive me for using that term. But Shabbat is a way that's is a day that's just for its own sake. It's a day where you just reflect on that moment and that right. even the past. Those are both excellent, excellent points. The man is, is a beautiful example. And Shabbat being our rescue from slavery uh, to, to the material world, also excellent, uh, excellent points. Thank you so much. That's beautiful. I appreciate that very much. And, and Natalie, it's a pleasure to have you. Thank you very much for joining us. Um, okay, so let's, any, any other comments or questions before we move on? Okay, so let's continue on. Um, so we are in verse nine, I believe, yes, okay. So before we, we continue, I'll just make one quick point. So now we're going to, from verses 9 to 12, we're going to have uh, the discussion of companionship among different men, different people. And we're going to see how the, those kind of dynamics work. Super interesting. Um, and I just want one point that he makes here that I think is really cool um, is that this idea of two being better than one and then three being better than that is an, that it's actually taken from 
or it's based on here, he says, an ancient proverb known also from the Babylonian epic of Gilgamesh, uh, which we know is very much compared to the story of Noah, right? Which also reflects the two, three gradation. There, the hero Gilgamesh wants to persuade his friend Enkidu to go on a dangerous journey with him. And he says, stop Enkidu. The second companion will not die. The towed boat will not sink. No one can sever the threefold cord. So it's literally identical. So I think it's just interesting to note that this was a popular piece of wisdom from the world. This wasn't just a Judaic thing. It wasn't just an Israelite thing. This is a piece of wisdom from humanity at the time. Concept, no? Very much so. Like the big three gods. Oh. Has a special number. Beautiful. Yes, 100%. Um, so let's see what he says. Tovim sachar tov Two are better off than one in that they have greater benefit from their earnings. All right, so that's pretty easy to understand, right? Pretty self-explanatory that when you have two people, it's better than one, you know, they, that they could, in a way, consolidate into something bigger and better. Kim Yipolu, sorry, Yipolu, Hayahad Yakim et Havero. Vilo Hayahad, Shipov and Shinilakimo. For should they fall, one can raise the other. But woe betide him who is alone and falls with no companion to raise him. Right? So there's nothing worse really than being alone and falling and having nobody to, to pick you up. You know, it's not literally falling. It seems it has something to do with somebody, you know, getting out of luck in business or something like that. If he's got nobody, he's done for. But if he has a business partner, he could feel free to take certain risks because his safety net is a little deeper now because he knows that he, he has more leeway and more of a, of a margin for error if he, can, if he has somebody to, to rely on. So that's just certainly very true intuitively. Um, Further, when two lie together, they are warm. But how can he who is alone get warm? Right? So that's just, you know, I, I have friends in uh, Israeli army. They tell me, yeah, and the, when, it's, uh, when it's freezing outside, the whole, the soldiers, they literally just hug each other because they're freezing cold. These, the, you know, guy soldiers are just going and they're hugging because, you know, if, even though it's weird for them, I'm sure, they do it because they're freezing cold. And that's just a, a fact of the matter. And it's a very human need to, to be warm. And that's, yes. Is this, uh, like, I don't know if you know this, but how often do you see the word Because it's making me think of David when he can't get warm and, and they're trying uh, to bring someone to like well, cover him. I don't, and it's interesting because it wasn't, it wasn't written in like an intimacy kind of scene. It was written as like a literal need for like warmth. Yes. Like, I don't know how often this comes up, but it makes me think of that. I think Rashi talks about it as between a husband and a wife. So maybe he was hearing that in a way. Maybe. But I think, yeah, like you were saying, the second point is exactly it, that it's just this raw human need to be warm. And it's, it's parallel, I think, to the raw human need for companionship. Just if you're alone and you're the last person on the planet, you're going to go out of your mind. Solitary confinement is the worst punishment you could give to any prisoner. Right. So we, we all know what that could be like if we, uh, you know, if we're, if we're lonely, you can't even imagine what it might be like if you're just completely, completely alone. Thank God we live in a, in a community, families, Baruch Hashem. All right, so uh, let's read verse 12 to close off this little small section. Also, if one attacks, two can stand up to him. 
So that really kind of closes off that beginning. Tovim Hashanah and Ahad. We actually had to memorize that as one of the pitkamim for Flappish. Tovim Hashanah and Ahad. When attacks, two can stand up to him. A threefold cord is not readily broken. All right. So again, even for self-protection, if you have somebody that's going to attack you, if you have a partner to, to fight against this guy, you're much better off, certainly. Power in numbers. Um, and, you know, I think this idea of three is just like showing you the exponential nature of this. Like, okay, two is great compared to one. And three, don't even get me started. That's even better than two. You know, like it's just the more the merrier. And that's that's very often in human psychology, just to go on a little side point here, we need groups. We can't survive as individuals. So much of uh, of what religion does functionally as it evolved in society is that religion evolved for the sake of moving us from very small hunter-gatherer bands into a society. The first societies were able to evolve because of shared intentionality. People with the same belief system, same intentions, shared beliefs about religious ideas, according to many anthropologists. That, and, and that's why religion in general, polytheism at least, had such a function and a virtue to it. Monotheism added to that. Not only can we have societies, but every individual in that society matters just as much as the other one. And you can't blip out the value of any individual so just this idea of groupishness i think we're very thirsty but we're hungry for this in society today because we live in a time of me we live in an individualistic society overly individualistic in which we forget the value of everything that we do that's virtuous about us is fundamentally not me you know all the all the virtues are things that help me feel larger than myself whether that be religious whether that be you know, self-sacrifice for the sake of the group, whatever it is, it's always, always, always not focused on myself. It's uh, self-love is beautiful and has a place, but to really feel larger than yourself, you have to, you know, defer to the other, the divine other and the human other. All right. So that's just my little uh, side point there. Um, Thank you very much. That's what I was going for. That's that's exactly (laughs) what I was going for. That's great. Um, biggest compliment I got today. So thank oh, you. I think back. <laughs> yeah, don't I have my ego's inflated enough. You don't have to inflate it more. But thank you. It's not yeah. about me. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Also go back and I like this passage earlier from Fruit Salad, right? When it's talking about can ask each it makes me think of the Yulat they said and how we end off after a battle of self-defense, talking mm-hmm. about how the Jews now what's the next decision? We're gonna give Matanot to everyone. So it's like, a, and I don't know how often this comes up, so if there's real significance, but here we have, can ask Ishmael Ehu, and there we have Matanot Ehu. Wow. And it's like the contrast of, like, what are we really aiming for, right? Like, this is like the self-centered focus of, I'm constantly in the comparing state mm. and can't see beyond myself. And there it's, we just won a war. And like, as opposed to going back to the beginning of the Megillah where we're having a Mishnah and everybody's partying and we feel so great about ourselves and we're forking off our riches. Yeah. The Jews finish a battle of self-defense and say, oh, we're going to go care about each other. It's incredible. I, you know, that's unbelievable. I, I love that because it reminds me, I was listening today to Rabbi Sachs' book, Morality, and he talks about the idea of uh, when, when, the, when the worst things happen, that's when we see the best in humans. You know, after 9-11, 
we saw the worst that humanity has to offer and what the terrorists did. We also saw the best, you know, let alone the people running into the buildings, running towards the, the danger, the, the, the firemen and the police officers and the first responders who all gave their lives for that. Of course, they are incredible. In addition to that, he tells a story of Gander, I think, which is in somewhere in the Midwest of the United States, where all the planes had to land there. And they were met after, you know, sometimes 48 hours of sitting on the plane. Uh, they were met with uh, people coming to greet them from the little town of Gander, giving them a place to sleep, a place to eat, to wash up. And it's incredible because humans are capable of so much good, just like they're capable of so much evil. And it, it, just the idea of recognizing other and realizing that, like, you want to be moved, you want to really be moved to tears by something. There's no better way to be moved to tears than by witnessing or hearing about or reading about or seeing an act of genuine kindness between humans. It, it, is, it is probably the most beautiful emotional thing to, to witness. So really, I think we could certainly agree on that. That's beautiful. Thank you for, for reminding me of that. Um, so now you look at the next section is verses 13. To 16. If you guys don't any more questions on that, comments? Okay. So this section is going to be about kings and their successors. So again, people would want to see, and he even he says, I am Kohelet ben David, and people would want to see Shalomo in this, and by all means, you know, feel free. Um, a fictional character. <laughs> some some dude. I don't know. I'm kidding. I, I have no idea, honestly. Could be. I, I really, I wish I could tell you. I really wish you had like the answers. We're gonna yeah. Them. One day, who knows? After 120, <laughs> we'll find out everything. All the answers we ever needed. I don't know. I'll be conscious. <laughs> I'll make sure. Yeah. Al Miz will definitely be conscious. That's one thing you could bet your bottom dollar on. Um, <laughs> okay. Just to, to see if he's still listening and awake. Um, I'm here. I'm here. What are you talking about? All right. <laughs> <laughs> that's, <good. coughs> that's called the cocktail party effect when you when you're you right when you hear your name right i still remember that from like ap psych my god that's crazy <laughs> the nonsense that you still remember it's pretty it's pretty important i guess it comes in handy. Did you say you're serving cocktails there now what's going on i told you you, tonight. you really missed out it's your your Sorry. loss man i'm here i'm here <laughs> i know i know you're you're here in spirit um, so now we're going to talk about some kings and their successors. So just a very brief word on this. Um, an old king is succeeded by another wiser than he, and a young king by others. But soon all are forgotten, and their fame has evaporated. The anecdote illustrates the fact that wisdom is effective, but fails to secure its gains. Human accomplishments are transient and will be passed on to someone else. So this is very much in line with what we were seeing in previous chapters, that it just, it doesn't make sense to focus too much on the future and even your wisdom and whatever accomplishments you can make because wisdom's practical value is real, but ephemeral. The instability of accomplishment rather than the loss of power as such is what troubles Kohelet, right? So favor does not belong to the knowledgeable. So it's just this idea that, that everything just passes on. And again, we, we could focus on transience as a, as a beautiful positive because when I'm going through suffering, if I'm in surgery and I have lead on me 
and because of the uh, the x-rays that they're going to do on some guy's ankle, and I'm sweating, and I have a face mask on and a mask, and I'm there, and I can't stand it, and I just want to get out of here, and I'm, I'm focusing on the moment, and then I You're come really back. You're really allergic to, to orthopedics, huh? Oh my God, Doc! You have no idea. You have no clue. It's it, this. It's my kryptonite. This lead stuff. Holy mackerel, Doc! But at least the, the, the alien suit that they give you is fantastic because you have your own personal AC. Incredible. Yeah, that all. It take. is nice. Yeah. Amazing. The fan inside of this, this suit. It's like a space suit. For uh, so I wish they gave me that thing. I felt like an astronaut. I, every time I go into surgery, I say I feel like Iron Man. They suit you up. You know, it's great. It's a lot of fun. It's it's really that that's fun. When you have an AC, it's great. Otherwise, God help me, get me out of here. Or don't even. And, and when the when the battery breaks, we won't even talk about that. That's like uh, that's like uh, worse than Ecclesiastes. That's like Lamentations right there. Um, okay, so let's let's see what he says here in verses 13 to 16. Better a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king who no longer has the sense to heed warnings, right? So if you're, so now this is interesting because this could be now actually a, uh, a story that he's going to tell about specific characters, not just a general thing. We'll see how it reads. Hey, welcome. Um, so we'll see how, how we want to read this. But for now, it seems like it's more of a general thing, right? Better a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king who no longer has a sense to heed warnings. So let's see where he takes this. Um, we may surmise that the latter had been incarcerated for presenting a danger to the This is interesting. We're going to see in a couple of Bizukim, the old king once knew how to be wary, and since the young man was in prison. So we're going to see in a second that this kid, the younger one, was in prison, but now he's not. It seems something to do with this. A younger person and an older person. Older person is the king. The younger one was in prison. We'll see why, but it, some, it somehow makes sense that maybe, maybe just maybe, this youth was incarcerated for presenting a danger to the king. Let's see if that reads well into the Pesukim. Right? So, ki- ah, so the Hachamim have tons and tons right. of debate. That's one of the possibilities. They, they say it could be Nimrod and Abraham, Potiphar and Yosef, Shaul, David, Paro and Yosef, Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel. Those are just some of them. And then yeah. even the scholars have their own opi- opinions. It's just crazy. So we'll, 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 uh, we'll see how what we think just from the Pesukim. But that's a great, great point. Um, for the former can emerge from a dungeon to become king, while the latter, if he, if even if born to kingship, can become a pauper, right? So that's one translation. Um, but you could also translate it as, with the the end part being for for the youth emerged from a dungeon to become king, and in his rule too a poor man was born. Nolad Rash, right? Not talking about the king, but rather saying that another person is going to be born after him that's also a Rash. So it's a little bit confusing for now, but let's see where it, where it takes us. So you have the, the Hacham, so you have the, the young Hacham, the young smart man, and the, the older king who is not wise. So what, what's going on? Let's see. <laughs> However, I reflected about all the living who walk under the sun with that youthful successor, successor who steps into his place. So what do you guys think this means? Any idea? It's pretty confusing. 
good soul. However, I reflected about all the living who walk under the sun with that youthful successor who steps into his place. This also makes me think but also Mordechai, like Mishnah Lamelech. Interesting. Coming in. I thought that too, actually, yeah. But so what, what does it mean just on surface level? So I think really all he's trying to say is, I saw all the living, those who go out about on the sun with the next young man who would ar- arise in his place. Right, so there's going to be the next young man is, is not the youth mentioned in verse 13, but whoever comes next. So he's just trying to show you the succession of what's going on. So let's see. Unnumbered are the multitudes of all those who preceded them. And later generations will not acclaim him either. For that too is futile in pursuit of wind. So it's really just the concept we saw earlier, that no matter what you accomplish, no matter how wise you are, you could rise yourself from rags to riches. It won't matter because your time in the sun will end and they won't even be remembered for, for what you did. So I think what he's saying, yeah. Here we are, generations later remembering it. Oh, we pointed this out. I think last class we said, this, is, this book is the irony of ironies. This guy who's saying everything's meaningless, they're not going to remember me. We're reading it right now. Yes, yes, this is exactly right. And there's so many people we don't remember, and he's one of them that we do, even though we don't know who it is. You know, it might be Shalom, it might not, exactly. Um, so That's everything's right, going to be forgotten. Not yes, to get down please. that rabbit hole again, but this is one of the reasons why I like to believe it is him. And it, and it, it makes you wonder, you know, what, what is he thinking as far as who's going to lead after him? And I think he brings it up again later. Um, but it's, it's, a, it's a funny thing to, to see how like, he's kind of like paranoid, um, yeah. you know, to see who's going to be ruling after him, who's going to have all the stuff that he's acquired. Um, I don't know. It's just a thought. I have nothing really to say about it. But A hundred percent. You're right. He keeps, he on keeps repeating on- it. It, it kind of yeah. seems like he knows he messed up somewhere, maybe, um, or maybe he knows that there's nothing he can do. Uh, so it's, it's interesting. It's an interesting concept. Yeah, I gave the example for those of you who didn't hear my very politically incorrect, and I'll say it again anyway, because if you're listening, if, if whoever is, is out to get me is listening more than an hour to my class, it means I'm doing something right. You know, if they're, if they're listening this far to get me for whatever I'm about to say, I'll accept. So I'll say it anyway. This is going to go on my podcast, right? So if you're listening uh, and you uh, you want to cancel me, this is the time to listen. Um, so I'll be very dumb here and say it anyway. Imagine you're an old man and your father was part of the greatest generation. He fought on D-Day. He went and he was dodging bullets and he fought and he came back and he, he regaled you with the tales of saving democracy and building society in such a way as to strengthen our values as Judeo-Christian ethic and as a society. And then, you know, uh, his son. So now this is the grandpa telling you about his father who fought in D-Day. The grandpa sees his, his grandson coming home from Harvard. He's this 18, 19-year-old kid, just got 27 tattoos, four earrings on his left ear with that absence of flesh in the earlobe, you know that thing. He uh, is, is telling you that, that all of society is evil and that you know uh, he, he's pro-anarchy and telling you all these crazy, crazy ideas. And 
the, the grandpa looks at the grandson. He says, this is what I worked so hard for. I worked so hard just to have this kid who's so left wing and forgive me for saying that, but that just seems to be what it is that, that he's, he's, he doesn't appreciate anything about those who came before him. And he's okay. Yes, we have flaws in society, but he has no appreciation for anything that we're doing. And he wants to tear down society. This is what I fought so hard for. That's truly meaningless. This is who I'm leaving my succession over to. I, this, over this, I shall mourn. I can imagine that grandfather saying, and it's a real, I feel into that tragedy right now because I hope and pray that my kids don't turn out that way because yes, I do think that society needs progressivism in certain ways, but I think it needs to be balanced and tempered by conservatism. So that's uh, hopefully will save me from being canceled that last <laughs> sentence. Um, and again, if I offended anybody, please let me know. I'll be very proud. Um, yeah. Don't, don't tell that to too many people. Um, okay. So, so what he's saying here, this comments on the entire situation described in which one ruler loses his power to the next with little rhyme or reason. So it's just meaningless. The way that these things happen up and down and this and that, it's like Sefer Melachim. It doesn't seem to be a logical progression as to why, you know, one king succeeds and one fails. You know, uh, was it Hezkiyahu, I think? Or sorry, Yoshiyahu, who, who was killed. No, Hezkiyahu, right, was killed by Paron Echo. And it just seems so meaningless and all the politics of it. He was such a righteous person. And it's so sad. So, so though, though wisdom can bring a poor man to power, he too is quickly succeeded and forgotten. This is senseless, right? So it's completely ridiculous that no matter how virtuous you are, no matter how wise you are, it will not give you a lasting security into the future that you can know for a fact will let will be solid and solidified. You mentioned in previous uh, pedic, you know, who knows where everyone goes up, down, heaven, hell. He doesn't really mention it like that, but he, who knows if there is, is even such a thing as up there rather than down there. Who knows if there is such a thing as, uh, you know, the nefesh and the shema going somewhere that that better than wherever the animals go. So these are the things that he's thinking. And I wrote down here in my notes. Social studies versus history. That Hanambam actually talks about studying history is ridiculous. What does he mean by that? Not just studying history the way we study it as a social science, but rather studying history in a specific way where there's no rhyme or reason to it, just memorizing kings and how long they're ruled and all that stuff. So instead of doing that, Hanambam says better yet to study in a way where everything is, you know, and I don't think Hanambam says, but we know today, everything is like, a cause effect kind of thing. When you study World War II, don't just study random facts about World War II. Study the causes, study the event, and then study the effects of it. And that's more of a, a logical way to put it. But sometimes you look at history, it just seems like a whole mishkebabble of random events with no rhyme or reason. And it's very dejecting in a way because the good don't necessarily prosper. History could be written by the victors who are not always the, the best people. And we hope that the victors win, that are, the, are the righteous ones, but not always in history. And that's a point of sadness for, for Kohelet. There is another pasuk in this pedic, but it, it, yes, please. I think wisdom in and of itself, he says, is valuable. Um, and I think he's going to expand upon that more in the, later in the book. But I think yeah, he's he's saying there's no there's no inherent value to just being to being wise, the wise youth, and that's why it's hevel because he's going to end up 
not remembered, just like the dumb king was not remembered. Sure. Absolutely. But he's saying better a poor, but why is he? So why is the why is he better? Yes, he says that in the beginning, but then he says Oh, this is a whole section, and he's concluding it's all Hevel because of this stuff. But he would have thought, yeah, okay, yeah, it is better, but not really, kind of thing. Um, so I just wanted to say, there's another pasuk in the chapter, but we're not going to go through. We'll wait for next week because it fits much better with whoever broke up the chapters. You know, didn't do such a good job. Um, so we'll we'll wait for next week for for pasuk 17. I just want to hear from you guys. What did you think of this chapter? What? How did it hit you? What are your thoughts, comments, questions? Yes. Um, so I made it through the last two, but it's the same thought. Mm-hmm. Nonetheless, um, I guess I'm just thinking, like, the, the author of this book, whether it was Shlomo or not, obviously I'm thinking about Shlomo, but, like, mm-hmm. during the time of, of his reign, sort of, like, when you're, like, I wonder if he was so aware of, like, how ephemeral everything was, um, and if he was aware, and, like, this wasn't just, like, a post, post-kingship reflection book, like, if at the time he was doing it, how do you, like, maintain that, that motivation and that drive to, like, conquer and do more and, and accomplish more and become, amass more, more wealth and more wisdom and more, like, um, and, like, do more mitzvah? It's sort of... Old know. habits die hard, I would say. What do you mean? I would say that even if you realize philosophically that something doesn't make so much sense, you still do it because that's your habit. You know... That we mentioned that in, that in the class that I gave a couple like a month ago about the limits of rationalism that your philosophical life that need not affect your practical life. You're happy to like compartmentalize your uh, awareness yeah. of like temporariness of your accomplishments, but then still striving. Yes. No matter what, I think we should always do our best, even if we have questions about the odyssey and evil and meaninglessness doesn't mean just you, you, you shouldn't go do your best, you know, but that's, that's certainly a good question. And, and you remind me, I didn't really finish that point that when, when you're tired and you're, and you realize the transience of everything and you're, that doesn't have to be a negative thing. It could also be a very positive thing because it means that the suffering that you're going through is also transient. So it's really, however you look at it for me, transient is very often a, a beautiful thing. It's a, it's a relief more often than it's a burden. Um, but sometimes it's a sad thing. Like, Oh, I, I wish this moment wouldn't end. I want to cling to it. And that's part of this idea. Don't cling and don't push away. You know, uh, don't try to, you know, just try to accept whatever the moment's bringing you without holding on to the good and pushing away the bad. You know? Yeah. Any other questions? Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate that. You guys, by the way, if you have any, feel free to leave if you need to, otherwise, you could stick around for questions or comments or anything. It's very fitting that we're talking about this around Pesach because it's the whole, first of all, it traces a theme. And I think that like that's central to what we're talking about because we're talking about when it comes to looking at history or talking about a book that's written here that's saying you're not going to remember, our whole holiday is not just about remembering, but it's an active remembrance, right? Mm. You're taking part in this, you're reenacting things. And like, I think it's very strong because it's just so central to who we are that our past makes us a, a part of who we are today. And it's a difficulty because we live in such a self-focused society. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I really, I always struggle with this. What's the balance? You were saying before, 
don't tell me not to be a psychiatrist and tell me to be a this. Yeah. And just because I might make more money and support my family in the future, the thing is everything is about the next step and the next focus and the next generation because in many ways we're part of a collective and the yeah. collective cares about that next generation. So how could you not? Even if you have money that you're satisfied with, right? It's like I'm thinking of my dad. It's his nature that he's going to say, okay, what about my grandkids? And I want to support them yep. and I want to care for everyone. And it comes from a deep place of compassion. I think faith is very subjective because we spoke about faith earlier. Yeah. Is it faith to stop at a certain point or is it faith to keep going and say, God is with me? How could I not continue with this? Very difficult well, to. Yeah, go ahead. I was just going to answer you a little bit there. I think what he's doing, he's kind of, he's, he's really building a, a, a devil's advocate here. And he's, he's letting you know that all these things that we do, we do, you know, grow up on with those kind of ideas and ideals about, you know, making, making a success for, for yourself now and for, for the things for the future. But you, you, what he's trying to do is you're, he's trying to let you know, like, maybe it's not worth it after all. Maybe what we're doing is, is pointless. Um, and, and, and he's kind of building this big tsunami of a wave of questions that make you question exactly everything that you know. Um, and, and I don't know if it necessarily has to do with faith. You know, you could still definitely have faith in God. But uh, what he's trying to say is maybe things are, are more individualistic. You know, I, I, I even feel within the community a lot of attachment with parents. And, you know, we stay as long as we can with them and things like that. But... <clears throat> There are certainly interesting lessons that I've learned recently as far as like maybe trying to find yourself more detached and understanding that they're not going to be around forever and you're not going to be around forever and, and uh, finding your true self potential on your own of just what who you are rather than imagining what's going to come after that. I love that point. And, and I, I can't agree more because I feel like the theme of, of so many of the, the resolutions of this class is, is the idea of balance, balancing. If there's no balance between self and other, you got a recipe for disaster. If there's no balance between self and collective group, you got a recipe for disaster. Everyone becomes a number. That's why you need the monotheism in addition to the polytheism, like we mentioned earlier. You only have polytheism. You have a group of no names who could build the pyramids and do all this stuff, but they're all disposable. You know. But if you have monotheism, you have the collective group that really matters. And everyone knows that, but you also have every individual who matters. So for me personally, I'm, I thank God I feel very lucky that I found a career where I feel like, okay, I'm not going to be that rich. I don't feel like I can make that much money, but hopefully I can make enough money to be comfortable, but also be very happy with what I'm doing. So I want to be able to provide for my family on the one hand, but also be happy doing what I'm doing. That's and, also a part of providing. Right? Absolutely. Like being happy look at a pyramid and you see them that 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 real that they're samech right i oh but we always talk about this in my home like i think that's the number one thing like to be truly happy with what you have and content is so powerful and if that message is instilled in your children you walk away with a message of well all the material stuff that we're talking about doesn't always have to matter as much that's as exactly you think right. that's so it's even more interesting to think he's even saying here maybe you're better off being someone that has nothing you know, not even not even appreciating already what you have. Maybe you're, you're better off being a foolish man. Um, and, and that's that's really the, the fun thing. I, I, I believe that what he's doing throughout this book, it really makes you wonder, not saying it's a good yeah. thing. I, I wouldn't say let's go live on the streets, but, you know, maybe you might be better off in a way. <laughs> that's that's I what he's it. doing.
Yeah. And it's, I, I, it's foolish. It's foolish that he does that to you, but that's the point of this book. You know, it's the point of this, this whole thing, I think. No, for sure. You know, it reminds me of uh, also the idea of codependency um, from what we were saying earlier about selfishness. And so for me, one of the biggest compliments I can get from people who I consider to be codependent is Michael, you're being selfish. When somebody tells me I'm being selfish for me, it's a, it's a signal that I'm doing the right thing. And I know that sounds terrible and evil and, and narcissistic, but I'll tell you why. Is because so often in my life, I've overcorrected in the wrong way, where I've overcorrected to you know, do too much not for me. And then codependents want me to keep doing that, where I'm feeling responsible for their emotions. But the beauty is when you start standing up for yourself and you know what you're doing is right objectively and that you're not responsible for other people's emotions, obviously don't be a mean person and just do things that are in general correct and nice and moral. But once you're in that zone and then somebody calls you selfish, pat yourself on the back because oftentimes it means you're doing something that you needed to do that was difficult to step step up for yourself and stand up for, for your own individuality. And I'm not saying go be selfish. Of course not. I'm saying there is the balance that you should strike between yourself and others, yourself and the group. All right. All right. Baruch Adonai Olam. Amen. Amen. All right. Thank you very much, guys. Albert, you're the best. Alamak. And I'll see you soon, hopefully. And Natalie, thank you for joining. Thank you so much. A pleasure. I enjoyed it so much. Thank you. Take care, everybody.